0: Welcome to episode two of See, Here Speak podcast. In this episode, I speak with my Boston-based collaborators, Gabby Slickman and Alyssa Boucher about neurodiversity, label stigma, and universal design for learning. Listen to find out how these concepts tie together and how they apply to clinical practice and educational outcomes. Gabby shares how being a person with dyslexia has informed her research, and Alyssa tells how her work with universal design for learning has informed her thinking as a clinical speech language pathologist. We end our conversation with Gabby and Alyssa describing their new exciting projects and some favorite books they read to their children. Don't forget to check out www.SeeHereSpeakPodcast.com to find a transcript of this podcast, links to articles and resources that we discussed, and more information about Gabby and Alyssa. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Gabby and Alyssa, for joining See, Here Speak podcast. Um, I've been working with you all for several years now, and I'm excited to talk about the topics of neurodiversity, label stigma, universal design for learning. I'll have you start by introducing yourselves.
1: Thank you so much for having us, Tiffany. I'm so excited to be here. Um, So my name is Gabby Schluckman, and um, I have my doctorate in human development psychology, And I'm currently um, the executive director and chief scientist at EdTogether. And I also um, have an adjunct lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where I teach a course on emotion and
2: learning. uh, My name is Alyssa Boucher. It's really exciting to be here today to talk about um, these things that are really meaningful in my life in many different ways. I am currently a clinical assistant professor at Boston University. I have a training, in, by training, I'm a speech language pathologist, and my area of expertise is in speech sound disorders. But I also care deeply about supporting children in the classroom who have communication disorders and making sure they are uh, participating meaningfully uh, through the use of universal design for learning. So prior to my position at Boston University, I was a a research scientist at CAST where I was really immersed in in UDL, Universal Design for Learning, which is where I met Gabby and then subsequently Tiffany.
0: Fantastic. Well, starting out with thinking about the deficit model versus neurodiversity. So as a speech language pathologist, I've been trained to think about the child's deficit and how to remediate that deficit. So we think about the tests that we can give to really uncover what might be going wrong. We think a lot about um, you know how to reveal these hidden deficits, but for instance, how to make sure that we are um, supporting a child to improve in those deficit areas, and then then there's this idea of neurodiversity. Can you help us think about, help me think about what is the difference between a deficit view and neurodiversity? Sure. So,
1: I think first I just want to say it makes perfect sense that we would hold a deficit view because. When we see a child um, or a group of children who are struggling, we just want to help that child. We want to cure that child. We want to support that child to get on the right track. And so we focus on what's wrong and how do I fix it, right? Um, And so a lot of our research um, and also the um, research around the practice and development activities around how to support kids really like hones in on that deficit and trying to understand that. But the problem with that is that it um, um, conceptualizes people, children, primarily in terms of those deficiencies. And so we lose the view of the whole person. And really, if you think about dyslexia, it's a lifelong um, uh, uh, difference. Um, where children have brain differences that have been documented and it affects multiple aspects of their lives. It's not something that you can cure. You can teach children to read, but, um, if we just focus on the deficit, then we lose the picture of this whole child who actually has lots of strengths. So, um, so the contrast, um, is really, You know, how can we understand the deficits and the supports and how to remediate the deficit, but also take this broader neurodiversity view where we think about differences um, as less pathology and more the result of normal variation in human beings? um, And that these differences aren't an all encompassing condition, but rather, you know, a component of one's identity. Um, where we all have strengths and challenges, so that we make sure we're um, um, supporting supporting these kids, all kids, really, to thrive. So it's a shift to focusing on building the capacity of kids to thrive, both in learning and their life. And that's about understanding the deficit, but also understanding them as a whole person.
0: And how does this relate to the gift of dys- dyslexia? So this idea that being... Uh, dyslexic is a gift that you can use that gift to um, improve your life in a certain way or that you are gifted in a certain way maybe you're geared to think about the world differently and that this is something that is seen as a strength as opposed to a deficit yeah so
1: I think that um, there's been this push Well, first of all, I just want to say dyslexic people are all around us. I'm dyslexic. (laughs) There are people um, in all swaths of life, in all professions. Um, And as adults, we just don't, they just don't necessarily identify. So we don't see them. So they're everywhere. And I think um, there's been a push by adults with dyslexia who have become advocates um, who Feel deeply the impact of the label of dyslexia and that deficit view on their experience of school and how difficult it was to get through school and sort of the the um, emotional and social development around that that they wanted to sort of change that point of view to be to have this more bro- this broader neurodiversity point of view and to say people with dyslexia are successful they're all around us. So um, a lot of you may have heard, and some of them are very public. So like Richard Branson, for example, um, talks about his dyslexia, has formed a um, not-for-profit called Made by Dyslexia that talks about this gift of dyslexia, Dean Braganier, who um, has an organization called Noticeability. Same idea, thinking about, you know, okay, there are differences all over the brain. They're not dyslexic people. They're not just localized to the reading and language areas. What else is going on um, in the brain? And looking to where are dyslexic people drawn to when they become adults? And in fact, there are some interesting spaces where we find dyslexic people are overrepresented among astrophysicists, for example. Um, there's some thought that they may be overrepresented among entrepreneurs, so uh, social entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs in general, um, that they might have um, uh, more advanced physio-spatial skills. Um, but this is all, at this point, conjecture. In part, I mean, there's some research findings, but they're very narrow, in part because the deficit view has so severely narrowed our research focus. So if you do... Um, a literature search, there's like tens of thousands of articles on deficits associated with dyslexia and um, practices associated with those deficits. But if you look to strengths, there's um, maybe, you know, a few hundred. And of those serious research articles, there's really just two or three. So we just don't know. I guess, is the answer, um, what those other brain differences, if if there is a gift of dyslexia or not. Um, but I know, Tiffany, you and I have talked about the fact that maybe it doesn't really matter right. if it's true or not, mm-hmm. because um, the negative consequences of the label dyslexia and how we treat that, you know, from this hardened deficit point of view, um, are so large that we just need to broaden to bring in this more positive neurodiversity viewpoint to help kids have um, a stronger uh, more positive experience through school so that they can do better um, overall and in their um, uh, when they're getting intensified
0: instruction so there you bring up label stigma and thinking about the label dyslexia and there's been this nationwide grassroots movement to Uh, diagnose, use the word dyslexia in schools, hashtag say dyslexia, um, the decoding dyslexia movement to screen children for dyslexia in the schools to label them as having dyslexia or at risk for dyslexia with the idea that they will receive the treatment they need and the supports they need in the schools. Mm -hmm. But help me think about um, and tell our listeners about the work you've done on label stigma and when we're thinking about applying this label now in this grassroots movement with the the new legislation that's out and we're starting to say dyslexia in schools, what are some of the uh, what are some of the things we need to think about with label stigma? And how do we apply that label appropriately?
1: Yeah. So, well, first, I want to say that I really like this movement I think It's really important that we are um, that we say the word dyslexia, that we are clear about the diagnosis. Um, this is how kids get the intensified instruction and services that they need. Um, and the earlier we can do it, the better, um, because we know early intervention really matters for kids. So I think it's an important movement. Um, in that context though, I think it's really interesting, um, how when we create labels for things, even if they're important, um, what, how that label is perceived by the person who is labeled because it can become an experience of stigmatization. So um, just to be more detailed about that, um, when you have a label associated with your identity, it doesn't always lead to stigma Um, there are certain conditions that have to be in place to make that happen. So um, stereotyping associated with that label, so certain traits that are associated with that that label. Um, If they're negatively if those are negatively understood stereotypes, right? So if it's a positive stereotype, it doesn't matter so much. You don't feel stigmatization, but if there are negative stereotypes associated with it, like for example, there's a ton of research literature that shows that um, a, a lot of people in the general public associate the word LD with um, being stupid or um, have a, having lower intellectual ability, or sometimes, um not trying hard. Mm. Um, and so those things are negative stereotypes that we associate with the label, um, loss of status that's associated with those, um, things. So like if you're seen as being, you perceive like that the teacher might see you as a problem in their classroom. And so you're like lower on the totem pole in the classroom. Um, and uh, separation so if you're like in the case of dyslexia we see kids pulled out of the classroom Mm. to get special instruction of course they need um, intensified instruction especially around language or reading related um, issues Um, but those conditions create the experience of stigmatization so in some ways um, you know very unintentionally we're trying to do our best by kids with dyslexia but we've basically, in the context of specialization, um, special education, created the circumstances that create stigmatization. Um, and so, my colleague um, Samantha Daly and I, out of the University of Rochester, um, wanted to explore, you know, what do kids with learning disabilities and kids with dyslexia think about the labels that they have? How do they understand? what society what do they think society thinks about those labels and how does it affect them directly so we explored that through a national science foundation project that we had funded when um, we were both working at cast and um, we developed a measure that um, allows schools um, and researchers to assess how kids um, think about those two things so how the stigma label how i understand it for myself how it affects me and then how I think society thinks about it. So um, so yes, we have to be really careful about the labels we use and be probing and try to understand how kids are internalizing those labels because those emotional consequences can be have serious impacts on kids' participation, engagement in school um, and their performance in the context of uh, their tier one education, but also their intensified instruction, above and beyond any challenges they might have related to their disability.
0: Can you tell me more about that? So how does the appropriate application of a label impact the child's performance, or how does the perception of that label and the environment in which it's perceived, how does that impact performance? Can you tell us about some of the studies you've done or how, that you sure. know about? Sure, so
1: um, first of all, emotion cognition are immeasurably linked to each other. You can't really separate them. We think about them as being separate things, but really they're sort of more like two sides of the same coin. Um, And we know that when a person, so you're constantly appraising the environment um, for, uh, you know, is it novel? Is this good for me? Is it bad for me? Is a social norm being broken? Am I in control of this situation? And when you appraise the environment as negative, like in the context of, ooh, maybe this teacher thinks that I'm stupid or I'm getting pulled out of my class and my peers think there's something wrong with me, then you're going to start to have negative feelings, right, about that? And that's adaptive, right, because it, it prepares your body to deal with the social situation um, and can cause things like your cortisol levels to rise, which is a stress hormone to help you get in that fight or flight mode or tend to friend mode so that you can self protect. Um, but th- the problem with that from a school perspective is that some stress can be good, right, in terms of helping you get amped up for a, um, a test or something like that but at some level that that, uh, stress and that cortisol becomes toxic um, and can actually negatively constrain your performance, your ability to focus, your attention. Um, And in fact, my colleague, Samantha Daly, for her dissertation work, looked at um, kids with reading-related learning disabilities and not and tried to look at their psychophysiologic stress system. And what she found was that just being in the context of school rose their stress system so much that they were just basically like walking around as if they they had this sense of impending doom like something bad was going to happen all the time um and you can imagine how that feels like would you be able to sit mm-hmm. and Uh, learn phonics, (laughs) (laughs) if you were feeling that way about school. Yeah, that would be very
0: hard. And how does it affect performance then?
1: Yeah, so um, there's been some like really interesting studies done that look direct, like try to quantify um, as stress levels go up and specifically these hormone levels and um, cortisol levels, um, you know, exactly how that affects certain cognitive outcomes like working memory, um, cognitive flexibility, inhibition. um, And some of the most interesting ones um, look at how you negate those impacts. So I'm thinking about um, a recent study that came out in Science where, this isn't about kids with LD, but it was looking at the achievement gap. So kids who um, are, minorities and of lower socioeconomic status, um, what they did was they looked at, can we um, reframe this and um, have kids do a sort of self-affirmation task ahead of taking a standardized test to try and mitigate um, or, or change that stress experience that they might feel sort of going into that standardized test where they might feel like, I know I'm going to do bad on this test, right? Because everything around them tells them that they're going to do bad. So in this study, they um, had them do a self-affirmation ahead of this English language arts um, writing assessment, standardized assessment. And what they found was a 40% swing in performance. So you're talking about 40% of the kids' performance associated with their emotion state and not necessarily their confidence to perform on the test from a cognitive perspective. So if we're not attending to emotion, then we're not even seeing what the kids know or can do.
0: So it's like a hidden factor there because it's something like an internal voice that's going on a, a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that's right. that might be going on. And as opposed to maybe doing like a self-affirmation, like I can do this, right. I've got this, that kind of um, mm-hmm. approach versus the negative ch- Chatter that's often going on. This is going to be hard. I don't want to do this. I'm bad at this. I did bad on it before. So those that that internal uh, voice Mm -hmm. can make a difference. It sounds like from this research, and Mm -hmm. so then how, or even reframing it. Like you can reframe
1: it. So there is research, and this is with, you know, high performing Mm -hmm. kids in college who were going to go on to take the GRE. and, um, really interesting research that had them take the GRE, a practice test. Mm -hmm. And before the GRE, they were randomized to either get training about like when you feel anxious, what, like your body, when your body feels that way, feels stress. Like my heart is racing. My breathing is short. I'm feeling like tight in my seat, you know, um, when your body feels that way, what does that mean? And you can either interpret it negatively, um, and sort of apply this conscious label of like, Ooh, I must, I, I feel bad about this. Like I'm nervous about this test or what they did was they trained the kids to think that's just your body getting ready to take this test to help you perform better. And so when they, it's called attribution training. So they reframed, um, how they made sense of how their body field. They did better on the Jerry, <laughs> um, and in fact, it wasn't, so they did this research study and then they followed them months later when they took the actual GRE and the kids who had the intervention, again, did better on the mm-hmm. actual GRE. So they carried over, they this, carried over yeah. This idea of that. right. Oh, that's Right, so I think we don't, it's interesting, emotion plays such a huge role in how we orient to the environment, how we feel about ourselves, the social connections we're able to make, how we perform in school, but we mostly attend to it as an aside. Um, as a part of our education, when really we ought to be paying, whenever we're setting cognitive goals, we should be setting emotional goals, too, Mm. and be paying attention to both those things.
0: Mm. And that would be a powerful approach, because you're looking at how to improve the environment, but also the social-emotional development to take advantage of the environment. That perspective changes. Exactly. That makes sense. That reminds me of a book I read, The Upside of Stress. Right. this idea that, if you're stressed out, you can look at it as, oh, this is bad for my body. Stress is really bad. But you can also look at it as I'm living my path and I'm taking risks and taking risks is good. And stress can be a a manifestation of opportunities. That's right. So, you know, thinking of it in that way. So that that makes a lot of sense.
1: And we can send those messages. That's really where the neurodiversity view comes. Like if we um, open up what that label dyslexia means Mm -hmm. and we think about it in a more holistic way in terms of kids have challenges, kids have strengths. Um, This doesn't mean those sort of negative things that are associated with it, you know, at the population level that we talked about earlier. Then kids will make different sense of it and those negative emotional consequences won't be there.
0: And then it seems that that could lead to also self-advocacy from a child's point of view. To say, you know, I have, I have difficulty mm-hmm. as they move through the educational system and encounter teachers and, and uh, just anyone around them, really. Yeah. They could say, you know, this is what I have and this is what it means and have the language to do so. Yep. And it can be quite powerful. Absolutely. How is your Personal experience informed your research. I've heard you speak about that in public forums, so I wonder if you'd share that here.
1: Sure. So, um, so I'm dyslexic, as I mentioned, and um, I had a really hard time coming up through the school system. Um, I didn't. I wasn't actually formally identified till I was about 13 years old, so eighth, ninth grade, and um, I was just sort of doing well enough to get by, but not failing badly enough. Um, to be identified and, um, uh, but I was always at the bottom, you know, at the bottom of the class and what that meant. And, um, and then when I got, uh, my label, my dyslexia label, um, it was just fascinating how people oriented to me differently, um, both positively and negatively. So on the one hand, um, teachers sort of understood better about, oh, that's what's going on here. And okay, now we can do these things. But um, it also caused them to act in ways that were really strange. Like for example, I had this wonderful French teacher who I was very close with, and she used to have us memorize and recite in class. And as a part of my accommodations, I didn't have to do that anymore, um, which was perfectly reasonable (laughs) accommodation. And the first day, I think with the best of intentions, um, that I would have had to recite, she announced to the whole class, you know, in her French accent, I can't even do it. Gabrielle is not going to recite me today because she's dyslexic. And I was like, Oh Oh. my God, you know, (laughs) and then all my peers. And what, and then you're, you know, you're 13 years old and what are they thinking about me and what does that mean? And, You know, you could definitely, at least I perceived some faculty um, giving me fewer challenges Mm -hmm. or not having, you know, the same high expectations. And I knew that I was, you know, um, smart and that I could do it, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Big exception to that was my uh, science teacher who, my biology teacher, high school biology teacher, who um, just... I don't know if he took a special interest in me or what, but um, I really loved his class. There wasn't a lot of reading. He was very inquiry-oriented, so he took this sort of multiple uh, ways, point of view about his teaching, um, I think to make it better for everyone, but that was really important to me, doing well, because I wasn't gonna be able to sit and read from a textbook and I was gonna have trouble with lecture. Um, and, instead of him focusing on remediating those negative things he tried to understand what i was interested in what drew me to science why i was doing well in his class um and i was i was very interested in space science and he took a special interest in that and um helped me go to space camp and um Brought those content areas into our class, even though it was biology class, um, to help keep me engaged. And um, I really developed like a like a real relationship with him, positive relationship, teacher-student relationship, as opposed to like being a number in the classroom. And it just made all the difference. And he advocated for me with other faculty at the school in terms of um, you know, like he connected with my English language arts teacher and was like, you know, I think if you had, because I wasn't reading at all, I still wasn't reading. I mean, I could read, but it was so hard that, um, like, I'd often go to English class without having read the assigned material. And um, I didn't have audio books or anything like that. So it was a real struggle. And um, he suggested to my English language arts teacher that we read something that was on space science. Mm. And we read he brought then he brought in the right stuff
0: oh, wow. um
1: and it was the first novel that i ever read mm. and um just having that it took me a year to do it so i did read in the context of the class but it took me you know a whole year really to get through the whole thing but i wanted to read it it was the first time i really wanted to read it, it was definitely above my reading level but um I did it and like that sense of accomplishment I just carried with me, you know, the rest of my life Mm -hmm. um, in the the way that like, okay, I know I can do this. I just need the right support around me and I have to figure out how to advocate for that.
0: Mm -hmm. That makes, I think that's a a great segue to think about universal design for learning because I see it as um, something that is not used often in speech language pathology. When I talk to clinicians, They've said, oh yeah, I've heard of that. It's more of something in the realm of special education. Oh, I've I've collaborated maybe with a special educator and with children who are severely impaired and maybe need AAC, alternative communication. And um, in meeting you, Alyssa, it was really interesting to think about how you have taken your background, your PhD in speech language pathology, thinking about children with communication disorders and how does that, um, that, our field and the approach that we typically use, Mary, to universal design for learning, and how does, how does it work together?
2: It's funny you, in, you start off with that because as I'm listening to Gabby talk, it just brings up so much for me as a practitioner. As a clinician, we are trained on the deficit model. We are trained with the medical model. So we take children, we take adults, we identify, we diagnose, we treat, we use all those terms, and so when i came to cast it was during my phd training so i had already practiced as a as a clinician and i had some knowledge of udl but it wasn't it wasn't until i was at cast when i was really immersed in it and i was getting a good handle on exactly what it was and i had this sort of internal conflict of oh my gosh are we have we been doing it all wrong what does my training mean i can't do what i Do now that I know this, and after I kind of sorted it all out, it's not actually one extreme or the other, right? So it's not all UDL and it's not all deficit model. There is, yes, we have to give kids those interventions. Some kids just need those intensified interventions, as Gabby was saying, but we have to broaden our lens and think about speech pathologists as a person in that child's ecosystem, right? So it's it's not just about what we do in that therapy room and what that child does in that therapy room, it's, it's much bigger than that. So I think universal, well, I guess I should start by defining it. Right. So you can think about it as a framework, a set of principles, a set of guidelines that really helps you plan more flexible instruction. And it's broken into different categories. If you think about it, you know, um, going across the guidelines and, and it's really helpful if you, if you, um, go to the website because there's a good visual of all the guidelines and then you can dig down into certain checkpoints that give you lots of examples of what this might look like. But roughly speaking, there's, there's three categories and and that's engagement, um, representation and action and expression, but you can think about it as going into different levels. So starting with access, um, what might we do just to make sure that our our students are accessing the material, the curriculum, right? And then you go down into building. So building skills, how do you build upon, um, you know, they have access to the curriculum, but you're building skills in terms of persistence and language and symbols and expression. And then the last level is in internalizing, and that's really getting to the point where you're taking a student and your 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 ultimate goal is to um, help facilitate higher levels of self-regulation and comprehension and executive functioning. And I should say that we do this. We do a lot of UDL as a, in our work as speech pathologists. We do this. So I don't want listeners to think like, well, well, this isn't new and interesting. I already do this, but I challenge listeners, if you are a practitioner, if you're a clinician, To think about using udl in a more purposeful way to think about how you select your materials your intervention strategies your techniques Um, because oftentimes we we choose things that we think are good for the students because they've worked before or they might be really interesting or they're flashy um or they're quick and easy (laughs) but we should really be thinking in a more um, systematic way about how we select our materials so that we're not inadvertently creating barriers for our students um, in our therapy room. So one way you might want to do that is um, start with the question, how might I create a barrier? And so a good example of this is if you're working with a a student who is dyslexic, um, if you're not working on direct reading goals, so you're not working on decoding or fluency, but in fact you're working on language goals because we know that a lot of students with dyslexia about roughly half, right yep, Tiffany, about half. have a language disorder too. So let's say you're working on comprehension goals. Um, how are you going to handle the fact that text is a barrier for them? And that's going to trigger a, a myriad of difficulties. It's going to trigger emotional um, reactions. It's going to possibly cause them to shut down. And then you, you can't actually work on those language goals, right? And, and being that person in that child's ecosystem, you want to be you, you want to provide the best possible experience with text, right? You don't want to add to that anxiety, that stress with text, right? You're helping them around that barrier. So if you're thinking about um, working on something like comprehension, if you're not, again, if you're not working on actually decoding text, then could you use something other than text? Could you read the text out loud for them? Could you use a tool um, to play the audio of a, a text, a text-to-speech kind of tool. Um, if you are, you know, using something like a graphic organizer, the term graphic organizer is somewhat misleading because it's actually full of text, right? And so yes. um, we might be writing with text on the graphic organizer and there might be words on it that they, they, you know, that are a barrier for them. It's as simple as, you know, like using a whiteboard in our instruction and, and drawing something and writing something. So how much text are we actually using? And so if you think about the term access, so I should say that UDL has been, it's a concept from the early 80s, but before that it was a concept in architecture. So we borrowed from that to apply it to education. But in architecture, the concept was, okay, for a long time we, we've we built um, buildings with stairs and you know, along came the laws that said, we, you know, everybody has to be able to access these buildings. And so we retrofit them to put ramps on them. And it turns out that, well, a lot of people need ramps, actually. So if you design from the beginning so that more people can access the building, it's not only one, a lot more appealing in terms of attractiveness for a building, but people like People in wheelchairs, that's you know, obviously the, the, the population that they're thinking about. But then what if you have a stroller? What if you're temporarily unable to walk if you're using crutches or something? Um, it actually widens the, the um, options for accessibility. So that's the kind of level you want to think about at the baseline for your students. Can my students enter the building? The, so to speak, building, meaning your curriculum, whatever you're teaching them, can they access it? Can they get to what I'm teaching them? And then from there, um, you can use the UDL guidelines to start building more systematically about the different approaches you take with that student. So um, let's say we're doing some goals around comprehension so prior to my reading I'm going to verbalize vocabulary I'm gonna have them put it in their own words I might do a sketchbook where they're writing the vocabulary words I'm not even gonna put lines you know sometimes we give them lined paper and ask them to write the definitions that might be a barrier so just have them draw pictures of that vocabulary have them verbalize it and record it make a um, uh, you can use Google Docs to do a speech-to-text kind of input. And so they could do some uh, verbalizing of the definitions and it appears in text for them. Or you can just do a voice recording and they listen to it, take the text out completely, Um, teach them how to annotate with symbols, teach them um, how to um, think about what they're about to read um, visually. So set the scene for them. So, So get them prepared emotionally so that it's not... Um, something that is so foreign to them so that's one way we can think about you know approaching barriers however we if we're still working with students with dyslexia in this case we don't want to completely remove text because we don't want to avoid it we shouldn't do that Um, but if you think about how we can use text as a facilitator you can be that one person that that person that they spend even 30 minutes a week, let's say, or twice a week, they're coming to see you. <clears throat> you can create a very scaffolded, supported environment in which they can feel comfortable taking risks with the text. So that might mean that um, you are giving them highly engaging text that so you can ignite, ignite that spark. So oftentimes if we're working with students who have dyslexia or reading difficulties, we tend to dumb down the content so that it's a reading level that is well below their their age or grade level, right? But that's so obvious to students and usually it's, it's not of interest to them and they know that it's selected from a younger grade and it's not appropriate. You are not igniting that spark. Go ahead and be bold and choose something that is of their level that is really exciting Um, and and take something from the web. There's a lot of engaging material on the web um, that they might not access on their own because it's out of reach for them. They're not gonna go and and pursue it on their own. So take that text, but make it accessible to them. Do do text-to-speech and help them navigate through the text being a very supportive person in their ecosystem so that they can start to see themselves as a reader.
0: It seems like then this is also setting them up to be um, successful and think about these barriers and how to get around barriers even into adulthood, which I think ties into this idea that dyslexia, as we know, is a lifetime condition. So you have you're, you know you're you're their ally. You're helping them work around these barriers at the same time, facilitating improvement in the area of deficit. Mm-hmm. But then that that helps them maybe to also see themselves holistically, right? Like this is I'm a person who can. Um, learn information in a different way. I can access information. So, with that in mind, you know what do you tell? Te- I often encounter um, educators who will say, "I don't want my students to use audiobooks, for mm-hmm. instance, because then they're not practicing reading."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, what do you what do you say to that?
2: I say, if before the before
1: you say, can I? Say, yeah, I think you said something really important that I want to put like a point on. Sure. Um, and that is that. I think so much of the time, if they're, if kids aren't reading on grade level, we don't think of them as readers,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know? Great point. And it's like, no, they are readers. Mm-hmm. They're reading. They're not reading on grade level. Maybe they're not reading in there. Maybe they're listening to texts on grade level in English language arts. That's reading,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, absolutely. you know? So like saying to the, you know what you just said, Alyssa, like, you are a reader. Mm-hmm. Let's grow it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's a really important, like, neurodiverse, and and you can use these other tools. Do it. Go do it. I mean, I'm an yeah. adult. I have my doctorate. Yeah, I still use text to speech.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's how, how I read sometimes, and that's okay. You know, absolutely. Um, or so, learning I'm sorry, information I
0: interrupted. You are gonna
1: do that. no. I think that works yeah. well. Learning into,
0: through a podcast.
2: Yeah, that's I right. That's <laughs> right. <Exactly. laughs> can be a good thing too. <laughs> I am all about the audiobooks. I'm all about using the tools. As Gabby said, if your goal is not, if you're not actually teaching word decoding, then go for it. I think, you know, if you were to sample adults, myself included, I prefer audiobooks. I'm not a fast reader, but I really want to dig into the material and I'm going to walk and I'm going to listen to my book or I'm going to do the dishes and listen to my podcast or audiobook that I you know I'm trying to get all these I have a two-year-old and I'm trying to rapidly learn parenting strategies for toddlers Mm -hmm. I don't have the time to sit because I'm not a very fast reader so yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna consume those books through audio and I'm totally okay with that and I think teachers should be on board and SLP should be on board too
0: well it ties back to what you mentioned about architecture right you said when the building is created yeah for all to enter then everyone has different access points and yeah. they can choose. If there's a ramp, they may want to use that for a stroller. Maybe you just want to walk up ramp. That's right. You don't want to do stairs that day. For whatever reason, it's your choice. And so it gives access to all. And I think that's important too. And back to what you said, Gabby too, it's like, what is reading really? We're reading, the goal of reading is to comprehend. Mm-hmm. So the way you go about that, sometimes it's through decoding, sometimes it's through listening to text. And we know that children who have dyslexia, if they don't have access to text, are going to go down in areas of language, even if they didn't start out with a broader mm-hmm. language deficit, because we access so much information. You know, <coughs> that, that formal instruct, that formal language that we use of text is so important. The vocabulary we learn, mm-hmm. so it does make a lot of sense. And um, you need instruction in how to do that. I mean, yeah. kids, you know,
1: kids mm-hmm. with dyslexia might have other processing related issues and. Um, they haven't had as much access to text in whatever form. So, you know, bringing in, okay, we're working on comprehension. Let's learn about listening comprehension and how you can leverage that as a reading strategy.
2: Right. And I want to tie it back together too to say, if you're listening and saying, "I, I do all that stuff, but maybe I don't do it with good purpose or good intention. This also gives you the rationale for why you're choosing the things that you're choosing. So if a teacher or a parent approaches you and says, well, why are you doing that? You can pull up the guidelines and say, because I'm trying to get this level first. Once they have access, I'm going to start doing this and then I'm going to do this. So it gives you a nice framework to follow, to justify and, and explain a rationale for the strategies that you're now choosing purposefully for your student.
0: And if you're an educator or speech language pathology speech language pathologist listening to this podcast, the UDL um website mm-hmm. is quite helpful, correct? Very like helpful. You can go on and you can learn about these different mm-hmm. levels, you can play around with different access points. Mm-hmm. So we would encourage people to go yes. to the website to take yes. a look further as well.
2: Yep. Yep. It's also good too, I should say, I think about it as a two way street for SLPs. So You are thinking internally about what you're doing in your therapy room, but it can also be a tool for you to think about how your students might be uh, hitting barriers in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So if you know a good amount about what they're experiencing in the classroom, you might be able to predict how they respond uh, to the barriers. So you could go to a teacher and then say, you know what, you have this coming up and I know that they're struggling with this. Perhaps we could do X instead to support them by using the UDL guidelines.
0: So you'd be more proactive than reactive yes. in that way, which yes. would be very helpful for right. the child. Right. Well, this That's is great, great too,
1: because if you're gonna really make a difference, like in having kids be able to better access the general curriculum, so that they can advance their strengths, mm-hmm. um, changing the relationship between practitioners who are doing intensified instruction and the gen ed teacher I mean, what you just described is more of a like deep partnership in planning that improves the tier one space, which allows kids to get more of what they need so they're not being separated, which reduces, you know, label stigma. So, Mm -hmm.
0: I think that's really important. Yeah, it it ties all together, I see, right? So you have this idea of neurodiversity, that you are thinking about the child holistically, and in doing that, you wanna be careful about how you approach the label Uh, applying the label, what that means to the child, how that interfaces with their environment, and UDL is a great way to approach the idea of what are these barriers, how do we make this more accessible. So I appreciate, this is a great discussion, I think that educators, speech pathologists, parents will appreciate hearing more about universal design for learning and learning more about it. Uh, As we wrap up, I wanna ask you, um, each of you, so what are you working on now that you're most excited about? Now that we know your passions a bit more, What are you doing right now?
1: Um, So I have two things I wanna mention, (laughs) I guess. So one is, um, some listeners might be aware of this awesome resource for parents, actually, but a lot of educators use it called understood.org. And it's really for parents to help understand um, the experiences of their children with learning and attention issues and to navigate the system. And it's very deep, it goes really deep. and I was involved in, uh, when I was a cast, uh, supporting the developers of that website to make the website UDL. Because a lot of kids who have learning attention issues, their parents also have learning attention issues, but are often not diagnosed. So we were trying to make the website um, be accessible and comprehensible to them. Actually, Alyssa was involved mm-hmm. in that too. Oh, great. Um Anyway, so many educators have been drawn to this site that. Um, the poses family foundation, which funded it, um, from the beginning, um, thought, and the national center for learning disabilities, you know, we really need to do a resource for educators and, um, specialists. <laughs> oh. So they're now doing under, understood for educators. Oh,
0: fantastic! Yeah.
1: So I'm involved, it's going to be a little different. There will be a set of resources that go out, but they're also working on a kind of cohort training mm-hmm. model where, Working with organizations that train teachers, like the Teacher Center mm-hmm. and other organizations like that, about um, universal design, RTI, issues of stigma, mm-hmm. social emotional development, and so on, um, so that that gets integrated into how all teachers learn. So I'm I'm doing that work now. I'm a coach wow. in the program and it's been amazing. Just it's just just beginning. Wow. So is it out, the out on the web, at, web now? It's not okay, so it's just so, in development. What so, are you thinking in terms of timeline? Oh my gosh. I think I mean they're so they're so fast, you know? Yeah, I, think, I know. I, I think within a year there'll be resources on the web oh, and wow. then this cohort thing is happening now. So they're doing a trial like a pilot to see how that might work. Um So be on the lookout for that, but understood.org is available now. What do you mean
0: that understood.org is UDL? What does that mean? Just tell me an example. Yeah, just tell us. Yeah. So
1: um so like from uh oh my gosh, like everything. (laughs) Um so there's articles, there's but um we tried to make sure that all of the content um, was presented through multiple representations. Okay. okay um, and that parents. So like a video. Yeah. Versus... So, there's videos. Um, there's audio you can listen to. There's graphics. Um, okay. we tried to limit the use of text. So, there are articles, but like, There's um, spacing, the um, reading level, I think is like seventh or eighth grade, Mm -hmm. in part because some of the technical language, Mm -hmm. but if you take out the technical language, it's like a sixth grade Mm -hmm. reading level to be like reader's digest, Mm -hmm. engaging. Um, And they have all the speech to text tools and everything built in. So if you just wanna listen to the site, you can listen to the site.
0: Oh, fantastic. Um, Yeah,
1: and they have different ways to engage with the content. Um, The articles are organized with like clear, structure, like Mm. repository text, like how, like, okay, here's the organizing theme and then three details. And at the top there's bullets, what to expect. And yeah, so it's really, and the whole thing is completely compliant with web accessibility. So Mm. if you have, um, you know, tools that you like to use, you can bring basically any text reader to the site and, Mm. um, and contrast and everything. So it's, yeah, so it's very, it's a good like gold standard. This is how you really make a universally designed, accessible website. Um, awesome, well you said yeah. you had two things. I wanted Yeah, to so about. that was the first one. The second one is um, I've been doing a ton of work in informal learning um, because uh, so many kids who come through the school system um with uh learning disabilities when they get to the other side often cite two things one a person who like was an anchor support for them um and oftentimes they have a learning experience outside school that propelled them um forward like either through an interest or um some connection with an organization that that wasn't like so traditional that helped them like choose to have higher education or choose to um go through the like i don't mean to frame it this way but torture of the way that a lot of gen ed school is set up um so for them for them Mm -hmm. (laughs) um yeah so um so i've been doing a lot of work in informal learning and thinking about how to um universally design spaces like um the museum of science in boston um and other places like that where um, kids might come and get really engaged in inquiry science or engineering or computer science. Um, you know, how do we sort of invite them into this space and then support the hard emotional experiences of like productive struggle, for example, like, how do I, how do I support someone when they're struggling to feel, really feel deeply that they're being smart, And that that is a worthwhile thing to do. mm -hmm. So we have a big um, NSF project, again, National Science Foundation project, that's focused on building out exhibits that explicitly support kids to have productive struggles Mm -hmm. around big science ideas. Um, Yeah, so I'm really excited about that work. So that's going to result in guidelines that would be applicable to schools um, and to um, and to informal environments when you're designing a space, right? Cause like, how do I, I, I'm sure Alyssa can speak to this. When I have a kid who's like in middle school and high school and their whole school experience has been such a struggle, I can't even get them to engage in the content. Like how do you get them to rethink what, yeah, like that, that struggle can be a positive thing. Yeah. Right. So that's what we're trying to do. Oh, that's very cool. Thank you for sharing that.
2: Yeah. I'm doing something totally different. <laughs> And more clinical. Uh, so I am collaborating with authors of a new assessment. Um, they are in the phase of collecting normative data. So it's a test that's designed for identifying motor speech disorders in children. Which we don't. We know there's a dearth of assessments out there. So the exciting thing about this one is that um, it's play-based and it's language-agnostic. So it can be potentially used around the world. Um, but it not only identifies uh, if there's a delay or disorder, but also tries to tease out the symptoms of childhood apraxia of speech, childhood dysarthria, or motor speech disorder, not otherwise specified, right? So a real challenge. Um, So within that study, I'm doing a secondary study of my own where I'm looking to see if there's a relationship between the performance on that new assessment and their pre-literacy skills. Um, and so I'm, I, I hope it's okay to do a shameless plug, uh, Absolutely. right now for anyone in the Boston area. I'm looking for, um, children between the ages of four and six with any speech sound disorder at this point. I welcome, um, them to contact me and, and send their kids for a study.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you. That's great. And then I have one last question for you. Um, I want to know, what is your favorite childhood book? And it can either be from your own childhood or it could be one that you're reading now with your children. So it's up to you. What What is your favorite? Yeah.
2: My current favorite is one that I'm reading to my son. Well, we've been reading it to him since he was probably three or four months old. And that's The Circus Ship. That's by Chris Van Dusen. And it is just delightful. It's it's uh the prose is fantastic it's rhyming (laughs) it's really fun to to read it out loud and it's um about these this, this circus ship with animals that are going to the circus and they get into this shipwreck and they end up on an island and it's all in Maine the coast of Maine which is a near and dear place to my heart so I love that factor too Um, but it was also given to me by a colleague of ours which is also Mm -hmm. extra special but what's really neat is that we've been reading it to him since he was an infant but now he you know finishes the sentences and he says it with gusto and he joins in and so it's been really fun to be on that journey with him
0: oh it's fantastic I have to get that for my children oh it's great (laughs) (laughs) because I don't have that one so that sounds great it's
2: really fun thank
0: you
1: Um, I think the one right now, so I have a 12 year old and a four year old, so they're like on different planets, like in terms of what they're reading. But I think like in terms of children's books, um, both of them have loved, um, King Hugo's Huge Ego. Do you know this one? No, No. I don't. It's awesome. Again, like it has the rhyming and like, it's a good fun read. Like the Mm -hmm. cadence of it is like really fun. Um, and the pictures are like outrageous. So it's this King who's like very self-involved, you know, like he just thinks he's the greatest and he gives the speech of adoration to his people. And he like wants everyone to bow down to him, you know, which I think like as a toddler. (laughs) So he, he meets the, one of his, uh, subjects. Um, it turns out she has magical powers and she causes him whenever he says something, like about himself that he's so cool or whatever it causes his head to balloon. Oh. And so in the book like his every time he says his head keeps ballooning and he can't fit through a door and and he thinks it's so great because he's like there's just more of me to, for you to adore. And then eventually he ends up getting like blown off a wall and bouncing and he ends up with this this his woman who did this spell on him and then she tweaks his ears and he gets to hear it back everything. Oh that he said and then he like has this moment of like self-reflection and then like decides to be like care about other people and be, yeah so it's like a nice social emotional story i think for toddlers especially yeah (laughs) Yeah. for all of us really yeah Yeah, but it's fun like the pictures are really fun
0: Yeah. Oh, that's really great. I'll have to get that one too. We shared this in the sense of our age gap, having myself having almost yeah. 13 year old, almost four year old and a two year old, That it, it gets tricky. So those books are freshly cool to have. Yeah. Hit both ranges. Yeah. Well, thank you again. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate it. And all the references and ref- resources you mentioned will be on the See, Here Speak website. So the listeners can can take a further look. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you. Stephanie. you. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, open access articles, and speaker bios. Thank you for listening, and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.